Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. Now, this is a special extra Policy Forum pod. It's an event that was recorded here at the Australian National University last week, and it's part of a series of live panel discussions looking at the issues of the Australian election. It's a live event, so the audio isn't our usual studio quality, but it's a great discussion that I think you're going to enjoy. This is the first of four events to be held at ANU looking at the election. The next is on the 30th of April and we'll have a look at Wicked Problems. If you'd like to register to attend that event, go to anu.edu.au forward slash events. First up on the recording, you're going to hear from the event's moderator, Catherine McGrath, and she will introduce the panellists. Dr. Katrine Beauregard of the School of Politics and International Relations, Professor Frank Bongiorno of the ANU School of History, Dr. Andrew Hughes of the Research School of Management, Associate Professor Fiona Jenkins of the Centre for Moral, Social and Political Theory, and last but certainly not least, Mark Kenny of the Australian Studies Institute. And if you haven't heard already, Mark is also the host of our new podcast series, which we're running in the lead up to the elections, Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. That comes out weekly and you can find links to it in the show notes for this pod or by visiting our website, policyforum.net. We'll be back with Mark Kenny's pod on Tuesday, then our regular Policy Forum pod on Friday. But for now, put the headphones on, kick back and enjoy this great event. Good evening and welcome to the beautiful Canberra Precinct for the first of these ANU panel events. And actually it doesn't seem that long ago that we were here for the last election panel events in 2016 over at the Crawford Centre. Were any of you at that series? Great, excellent. Well this series is going to obviously reflect the changing times between 2016 and 2019. But as every time, ANU does lead political debate. It really does around this country. Particularly with the academic and policy background and depth of the people here. So this event is going to showcase all of that and hopefully for you, give yourselves first access to these experts to ask your questions and really help your understanding and interest in this election period. So this is the first of four, as we said. I'd like to start also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Ngunnawal people, and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And I extend that acknowledgement to all Indigenous people with us this evening. The 
campaign so far has not even finished its first week and we've got about four and a half weeks to go. But already some themes are emerging. What is going on in Australian politics? What's going on behind the scenes? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I also want to take a moment to plug for anyone, any new voters, to ensure that you have enrolled for this election. The AEC cuts off its uh, registration Thursday night. And if you've moved cities, moved towns, please make sure you update <coughs> your registration there so you can uh, get that in. So I'm Catherine McGrath. I have covered... Uh, 10 of the last 11 elections. This is the first election I've been outside of the media since the mid-1980s. So it's actually quite fun to be outside it. Uh, the last election I was Chief Political Correspondent and Bureau Chief of SBS and before that, almost every election before that, I was part of the ABC team somewhere or other, here or in some other part of Australia. So it is a fascinating panel to bring together. If I can just introduce them, Mark Kenny. Mark is from the Australian Studies Institute at the ANU. He is a great catch for the ANU and recently has come on board. Uh, Mark has had a long and high-profile career as a journalist in the federal parliament, culminating in six years as chief political correspondent and national affairs editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and The Canberra Times. And if you are up early or early-ish on Sunday morning, you will have seen him on Insiders in Melbourne. He's back in time tonight for this personalised panel. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Dr Katrine Beauregard is a lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. Katrine's main area of research is public opinion towards women in politics, gender quotas for political parties, public participation in politics and the inclusion of marginalised groups. Katrine, welcome. Thank you. Dr Andrew Hughes from the Research School of Management is a lecturer in marketing and Australia's expert in political advertising, Andrew. So Andrew is the expert on social media advertising, social media activity and also the uh, way political parties are advertising their strategy, the output, the results. And Andrew in his recent book was one of the first to analyse the work of Cambridge Analytica. So, um, And we're seeing that kind of impact imparting slightly in Australia. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. And uh, Professor Frank Bongiorno AM, Head of the School of History and co-author of Elections Matter, 10 Federal Elections That Shaped Australia. Uh, prior to joining the ANU, Frank lectured at uh, the King's College in London. He writes for Inside Story, The Conversation, the Australian Book Review, the Times Literary Supplement, and he appears on ABC's The Drum and more. Frank, welcome. Hi, Catherine. So we're going to start off uh, looking at uh, the election so far. The, the election campaign is just beginning. We're wondering, you know, what is going on inside the parties? What is going on behind what we see in the daily news? We're going to start uh, with you, Mark. What do you think uh, it's worth the audience considering as the first week is not even finished yet? Yes, well, thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I'd say, in a word, a bit of panic uh, is what's going on inside the parties. Uh, a lot more activity uh, under the surface than you see on the surface. Election campaigns, as we all know, and to, to some of our uh, great frustration, I guess, are very staged-managed events, and we see uh, both uh, both leaders, the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader, traipsing around the country. We try and uh, analyse what their what you know what their campaign themes are from what they say but also from where they are and how they go about it and what they don't say uh, and I guess from that we can see that there's a, a fair battle going on in Liberal held seats that Labor feels that it has a chance of winning so we can certainly see that with uh, the, the appearances that Bill Shorten's making. We can also see that Labor believes it's on a winner with uh, talking about health and cancer care and these kinds of things. 
On the government side, we can see that they, uh, they are backing themselves in on their budget. It's all about tax cuts and economic management and uh, the risk of going to Labor and what that will mean. Um, and then, of course, we have what's going on underneath, you know, at least the, there's the second track of election campaigns, which is, you know, the advertising and, and the behaviour of other other players in the, uh, in, the, in the broader field, I guess. And, uh, and the, the, you know, so on that second track, I think there's a lot more negativity than there is on the first track. The leaders are trying to present their, uh, their positions. I think Morrison's showing himself to be a very strong counterpuncher and he's, uh, he's hitting uh, Bill Shorten pretty hard. And I think it's been, just to conclude on this point, I think it's been a pretty scratchy start for Labor, which may be the curse of starting out in front. And it may be that uh, Bill Shorten's just, uh, you know, perhaps gone into this maybe a little more confident than he should have been. Maybe he was thinking, I did very well in 2016, I'm going to do very well again, I'm starting in front. Uh, and he's just looked a little bit, I think, uh, a little bit distracted and a bit scratchy. And uh, Morrison, on the other hand, he's not going to leave anything on the field and he's, uh, he's playing pretty hard. Mark, thanks. Katrine, from your perspective, from the uh, School of Politics, what have you seen yeah, and what from, do you think we should be thinking yeah, about? For a public opinion perspective and for electoral behaviour perspective, I mean, the political party will try to bring up the topic where they are viewed by the electorate as uh, the most popular, the most confident, right? The Labour are consistently over the years have been scored higher than the coalition when it comes to healthcare. The voters trust them when it comes to healthcare, and I think that's why Bill Shorten is uh, making all these announcements about funding cancer, cancer research or hospital because they want to put into the voters' mind that we're the best when it comes to healthcare, and you should care about this and vote for us. I, the same thing uh, with the coalition was Mark was talking about that, the tax cut. The coalition score always better in surveys when it comes to credibility, when it comes to finance, management of the economy, so they will try to put their best uh, to make the voter focus on this instead of focusing on, on healthcare. And obviously when it comes to more of the, the political, right, Bill Shorten has been uh, trying to frame also the campaign in terms of stability, that if they vote for me, you get the stability that you don't going to have in the coalition who keeps on changing prime minister. And again, because this is polling very badly in our survey that we conducted, voters don't like this constant backfighting that the, the Liberal Party has been putting the voters onto. So by trying to frame it as a stability versus instability, you're trying to, again, bring us, focus the mind of the voters on what you think are going to be the winnable issue. Same thing again for the coalition or Scott Morrison saying no. your choice is between me or Bill Shorten because Bill Shorten is not very like among the Australian population. He's const constantly polling not trustworthy, untrustworthy, or not likable. So he's trying to frame the election as more of a personality contest versus of an issue contest. Katrina, we might return later to some of that research you've done about uh, vote, voter trust, and it reflects the questions that you put in when you registered that really reflect that view, a lack of trust in the political system. Mm -hmm. It's not really a surprise to anyone right now. Andrew Hughes, I've noticed that the election isn't even leading the news on mm. most nights. It's not leading the news on the radio. It's not leading in the newspapers. Online, what's happening? What do you think's happening in advertising? Um, and this is interesting the way the campaign's starting now in 2019 is that you have to start behind in a way from people's awareness levels that not even aware sometimes of what policies are being offered. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who are educated who are concerned about certain issues, but not everyone. Um, and that's reflected in how the news treats politics now. It's, it's usually not, not just the first or second story anymore, it's the third or fourth sometimes. So it just shows the reflection of how we put politics in importance, but also how it turns people off. 
So you start with the demotivation effect with most campaigns now, where people are just go, not I'm not just unaware about you, but I just don't like you. I don't like any of your messages. Mm. And so campaigns have to start trying to get that uh, trust back. And some of the points talked about before by Mark and Katrina is like that credibility factor has to be restored before you can get people to watch your So what um, do you messaging. see? What are the ads doing? Are they, are they, is that what they're doing? They're setting up both leaders now to be trusted? Well, it's funny. On, on heritage media, like on TV, it started off very slow. It was getting to know you. The election um, was basically announced by Scott Morrison releasing an Instagram slash Facebook video of him talking about he, this is his life with his family and his kids and all that type of thing. Um, the super aspirational background music, all that type of thing. But then it very quickly moved into, let's go negative, let's go dark. And before the end of the first day of the campaign, we had negative ads rolling on TV. And I think it just acts as a demotivator to people. It's not motivationally relevant, you won't watch it. That's just theory, that's just fact. Um, and parties have to start realising that. So one of the trends already emerging in 2019 compared to 2016 and campaigns before it is the five-second ad on YouTube, for example, has become very big. The 15-second ad on other platforms where they know you have to watch that ad before you can get to the content you want to watch. So that'll become the hallmark, I think, of 2019 is that a lot of the messaging won't be done through what we call heritage media, like TV, radio, print. Um, it'll be done through the more social platforms where I can do more targeted messaging but also their short, punchy pieces. Who can master the short, punchy piece will probably triumph at the end. Thank you. And before we go into frame, we're going to, cause, of course, um, talking about social media is so important in this election. We are on social media this evening. <laughs> Our hashtags are, so you can join the conversation, hashtag AUJoin and hashtag OzVotes. And, of course, as always, at uh, our ANU. Uh, Frank, what sort of election is this? Yeah, so the research we did on you know, federal elections since 1901, I mean, one of the things we found is that it, it isn't always the election where you have a change of government that matters most. Sometimes it can be an election where a government's returned, but it's returned in circumstances that were unexpected. 2016, I think, is a classic case of this. I mean, I don't think it was widely anticipated that, that you know, that the government would end up on a knife edge in the way it did. And, of course, by the end of its term, it was a minority government. And that had powerful consequences for everything, really, that happened after 2016 through to the present. Um, I think during campaigns, there is a manufacture of difference. So, I mean, clearly there are policy differences, significant ones on some issues at this election. Um, but there's also a tendency in the theatre, I think, of campaigns to perhaps overplay those differences. You know, I guess you'd call this product differentiation yeah, in marketing. Yep. And I think, you know, again, as, as, as a historian looking at this, one needs to be a bit sceptical because, you know, you, you do need to ask, you know, well, what happens afterwards? What happens when they actually get into office? So I'm very interested here in the, the context in which, if, if it is, for, for instance, a change of government, that a new government's going to face. It's going to face... Uh, probably quite difficult economic circumstances, low economic growth compared to what we've seen over the last quarter of a century. And, and you know, my, again, look, my glance at Australian history over the last century or so suggests that those contexts are much more crucial than anything that, that, that is said during election campaigns. I'm, I'm sure that's right, yeah. but the campaign is going to be decided over the next four and a half weeks. Yeah. So I'm going to pin yeah. you down on that. From a historical perspective, is this an election campaign that begins with it being Labor to lose in a historical context? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I have seen comparisons with 2004 and Mark Latham. 
Uh, you don't need to be a professional historian to notice some of the differences, I think, between the current circumstances and, and 2004. Um, and, and, in fact, by the eve of that campaign, it was pretty 50-50 back in 2004. Um, Latham had been well ahead, of course, at an earlier stage. So, look, um, I, I think it is Labor's to lose. I, I don't think it is easy to pull that back. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't happen, but, you know, the polls have been stuck somewhere around there or, indeed, with a larger margin for a long time now. And I think that, that does make it very difficult for the coalition. Of course. Now, to look at the topics that you said were interesting in the survey when you registered, and they reflect absolutely what people have said. So 21% uh, were concerned about the role of the media, wanted to talk about the role of the media. Trust in the democratic process, 20% of you said that that was a big issue for you. Rise in minor parties and independents, 18%. Wanted to talk about that. Trust in politicians, 16%. So uh, political donations, 12%. Party leadership and preferential deals, much lower down. So these are the kinds of issues. So let's, let's see, is Eleanor Painter here? Eleanor is the first question we're going to go to. Eleanor, who registered her uh, question online... And she went straight to it. Most people are incredibly disillusioned with politics. What inspiration can we draw from the current election to encourage engagement in politics? Mark Kenny. Well, I, that's a, it's a fairly typical question, and I think it goes speaks to a long-standing, you know, sense of despair that voters have about politics. You know, the Tweedledum, Tweedledee thing when the, when the two parties are seen as very similar. I, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a, you know, an absolute apologist for, for politics, being someone who's lived a long time in the bubble, but um, I think there is a fair bit between the options that these parties are putting forward at the moment. There's a quite different philosophy being put forward by Labor. Someone described it the other day as uh, the difference between trickle-up economics and trickle-down economics, and uh, there's no doubt that Labor is... You know, proposing a much more redistributive agenda than yeah. than is the case from the coalition. There's no doubt that Labor is pitching to the uh, the younger end of the electorate, and the coalition is sort of speaking to its own people very strongly. Um, and in that sense, there's a very strong, I think, flavour of the Labor Party putting, you know, taking some risks and putting forward a vision. I've been describing this as a contest between vision and accounting, which is, you know, is not a particularly favourable one for the coalition. Uh, but that's that's pretty much how I see it, and I think it's why there is the lead in the polls that Labor has. It's been out there talking about climate change. It's been out there talking about doing something about health, about access to education, about training and about wages and the sorts of things that are actually concerning people uh, around the country. The coalition, on the other hand, is um, is trying to sort of argue... That old, you know, it's an idea that has some purchase in the electorate. But that old idea that we'll make the economy strong, and then you'll get all the dividends from that at some point. And um, people are struggling with that. And I think this is a real danger for the coalition because every time Scott Morrison says it's a strong economy, in a way he's doing some of the work for Labor because he's saying. He's reminding people that it is a strong economy, but they still feel like their wages haven't moved in a long time and their cost of living is going up and that there are these other problems that are sort of gathering on the horizon, including, importantly, the climate change question. I, I noticed today, for example, that Vote Compass on uh, 
on the ABC, and I should say the ANU is going to have a, its own voter <laughs> ad, ad, assistance application as well, yes. uh, and that will be up and running soon, called Smart Vote. It'll be better than uh, Vote Compass. Yes. Um, yes. Of course. It, it is actually more interactive. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Vote Compass was absolutely going gangbusters today. I mean, it started, you know, a couple of days ago they had 40,000 responses, and today when I saw Roland and Trioli talking about it, there was it was up getting up to... F- uh, 500,000, you know, like you can see it moving. Mm. And it was really interesting when you see the issues split. Uh, climate change was well ahead of the economy and then other things came in after so that. So, Mark, I'm just going to jump in getting back. Thanks for that. Getting to the dis- this delusionment here, and this goes to Katrine's research. Yes. So what, what have you found? I mean, we've all heard everyone's, dis- <laughs> you know, large numbers are disillusioned. They're not happy with the party system. Feel politicians aren't listening to them. Yeah. What have you found, and do you think the politicians this time in their campaigning are showing that they're actually adjusting to I- that? Ah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the the, 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 the relationship between representation and how people feel about the uh, the political process. So my research is mostly about gender and politics. And it, when it comes to Australian politicians, they're not very representative of the general population, right? They mostly tend to be men, they tend to be white, they tend to be... Uh, from well-off background, from Sydney Law School, most of them, right? <laughs> and even when it comes to the number of house they own, they tend to own more houses than the regular population, right? So the, elect- the politicians are very different from the regular population, and that actually kind of create uh, some part, not every part of it, but some part of disillusionment with the politician. And that we have found, as you probably can tell by my accent, I'm not Australian, I'm an immigrant. And But if we compare different countries where, where the electoral system or when the politician looks more like us, people tend to trust them a little bit more. It, it's make, it makes it this all argument as these are all a bunch of crony or corrupt people or a bunch of uh, people who are on there for their own little pocket and not for us more difficult when actually we can see ourselves being more represented in terms of mm-hmm. gender but also in terms of background, education, in terms of diversity. So the research is actually saying yeah. what? That until the parliament is more representative, yeah. people are not going to have that trust. Yeah, it, it, it's not all of it, right? I just don't want to say that this is the magical solution that if we just have a... a, a but it's part of the yeah, equation. But it's part of the relationship yeah. because we do identify ourselves with them, right? We do see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And also it's a little bit easier to trust people who you think come from the same background mm-hmm. or share some of your experience, right? If everyone is uh, uh, from the same elite background, right, it's more difficult if you come from a different background to initially trust these people, so right? Start, so starting off with one woman in yeah. cabinet's not a good start. Really. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? It's kind of a bit of a, a target, right? So I think it does play a, a big of a part. Is to, and then we can see it in the, the, the way in the election or how how, why is gender coming back over and over again in the Liberal Party, for example? Why this issue is not really much going away, and why? And at some point, it becomes a strategic issue from the Labour, which is can basically use them and say, "Hey, look, we're actually doing much better, right? Look at us, vote for us. We're actually 
we have quotas, we're gender representation, we don't fear strong women, we treat them. It becomes, because it actually resonates with the population. And we have done surveys in the Australian population about this sort of thing. And most of Australians do think that gender representation is an important issue. They disagree in how to achieve gender representation, if we want to talk about quotas a bit later on. But they generally, people, there's an agreement that actually it's a good thing to have those elected representatives well, it is, looking like us. it is like a good us. time, I think, to talk about your research into quotas. <laughs> because what have you found? I mean, you have looked at the number of... Uh, women MPs coming into the mm -hmm. Labor Party, number of women coming into the coalition, yeah. and you've looked at that and their backgrounds. Yes. ALP has quotas, coalition does not. And what have you found? Yeah, so one of the, 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 the argument, right, that when we mention gender quotas is always the merit argument that having quotas will basically lead to having less good candidates or a candidate that doesn't deserve to be here. And we actually do have the data and we can go and actually look this. And that's what me and my colleague Maria Teflaga have done is just to look since the 1980s and compare men and women candidates in both major political parties. And basically what we have found is that actually in the Labour Party, as we go over the years, the women are actually a lot becoming over time a lot more diverse and more qualified. So in terms of they come from more diverse background in terms of uh, feminist movement, environmental group, trade union movement, uh, more community association movement from the political party. So we have this emergence in the labor parties of very qualified women who have extensive network. And it's probably how they get there, right? Is that they have put in the time with the party, they're putting in the time with their communities, and they become extremely well qualified, and the labor party is more than happy to nominate them because they are very qualified. And what we have found in the liberal parties, a much different story is that there's very much this one path to candidacy in the Liberal Party from a more uh, business party oriented, from a, a business background, and it's not as much open to a more diverse kind of experience. So let's break that down. What does that look like? What does your research tell you about the kind, as you're saying, more diverse community background yeah. uh, for the, in the Labour Party? So what are some examples of, of I guess, the roles they've had at local government, etc.? Yeah. And then the Liberal Party people, what are you saying, that they're actually the same, male and female, the same yeah. kind of background? So it's more like they more, they more view one types of candidates. There's one good types of candidate, basically, and that might be detrimental to women who, for multiple reasons, are less present in more business, lawyer background, take time off to raise their children, or have a different types of involvement in the community. That kind of experience might not be as valued within the Liberal Party as it might be in the Labour Party. So that may be a bit of the reason as to why we have less women in the Liberal Party is because we favour this. There's just this one path to candidacy. And if you don't, for whatever reason, you decide to take time off to raise your kids or you decide to go work in your community, you become less yeah. qualified. So I that's think it's kind really of interesting to see how yeah. this research plays into yeah. what's happening in Australia right now because unless those figures are examined, we're not going to understand more yeah. about what's going on because, Frank, I mean, this is an election, historically speaking, where this is a whole new... <clears throat> topic, you know, historically speaking, these topics of gender has not have not dominated elections before. Have not been major issues. Would you say? Hmm. Uh, gender. Well, <laughs> I think women's issues, regardless, as important to women, have have figured. I mean, one thinks of the um, women's electoral lobby's role in the nineteen seventy two election campaign. So I think, you know, since the, the early nineteen seventies, at any rate. Um, mm. Uh, the issue of gender, the issue of you know, particular um, issues faced by women, equal pay back then was a, a major issue. In fact, it is still in. in but participation, in I mean, do you think, I mean, yeah. I see it, like, it, to me it looks very 
the different point being made is that there needs to be more women in parliament. There aren't enough women in parliament. How do we get more women in parliament? How do we get parliament more diverse and reflective of society? That part of the That's debate more seems press, new. more pressing. Yeah. I mean, it really took off in the 90s, didn't it, with uh, Emily's List and, and, and obviously the changes in the Labor Party's policies around these sorts of issues. And, and yeah, I mean, the, I think particularly, you know, going back to Mark's point, that the, the uh, Abbott government's you know, very poor uh, gender balance, if you like, well, balance probably isn't the word for it, <laughs> gender representation in its, in its first cabinet, I think really crystallised you know, those sorts of issues. So, um, yeah, in that sense, I think it has become much more important. I think if I just quickly yeah. add there, I mean, the problem the Libs have now with this is they try, they'd like to get there, they'd like to get to some sort of, you know, the, the, at least the appearance of progress here, but they don't want to do it with quotas. So that you know, I mean, it's a statement of the obvious in a way, but they have this ideological objection to the idea of quotas, but they would like to have better representation of women. So at the moment, they're you know sort of putting women behind Scott Morrison at various appearances and <laughs> emphasising that uh, you know that some yeah. of the you know. And they do have some good mm-hmm. women, you know, Sarah Henderson in uh, Karangamite, for example. They do have some very competent women in their ranks, but in, numerically they're, they're, they're vastly underrepresented. There's no question about that. And they're, they're sort of trying to do it with optics at the moment and, uh, and not much else. And, Andrew, what are you seeing in terms of the advertising, the online activity? Well, if you think about it, just on what the point everyone else has talked about, um, this is the first election where Julie Bishop hasn't been deputy for a long time. And that's really hurt them, I think, carrying that message forward. It really hurts them in those middle-class suburban markets where they could get someone like Julie Bishop to carry that message. And you've seen that contrast with Labor already, with Christina Keneally, the way she's been able to do that role mm. really well for Labor. Because um, Labor knows that Bill Shorten isn't popular. He's not been the preferred Prime Minister now for... I forget how many news polls in a row, but it's a lot. Um, I, last I heard was over 50. So that's, normally you'd be gone by now. Um, but they know they have to go back to other people, their policies... Mm and other people on the team. And she's been critical so far in their campaign. In fact, I'd say she's held their campaign up so far in the first week um, because she's been able to hit those markets which Bill can't. And she's done it really well. And she's exposed that weakness in the opposition... uh, Sorry, in the government. So um, they don't have anyone there like a Julie Bishop that counteracts someone like Christina Keneally. And I think that's where the loss of Julie Bishop really, really hurts them. But ironically, um, not in the shadow cabinet. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And uh, but at but the same time, maybe she came she, in to fill yeah, but she did the role. She, vacancy. Uh, yeah, in 2016, Sam Dastyari had this role. Mm-hmm. He was like the attack, the um, carrying the message forward. I can say the things which Bill can't. If I say something silly, well, it's just me. You can't do much about me. Mm-hmm. And and she's doing that role, but she's doing a softer role of it. Mm-hmm. So she's not the same attack, mm-hmm. aggressive, hardcore messaging, it's a lot softer and I think that's all about their risk profile as well to try and convey that message that hey, if you switch to us less risk. We're not crazy like we were maybe in years gone past. Well, it's past. also, I mean, the thing that the <laughs> ALP has to deal with is the fact that the popularity rating, as you mentioned earlier, of Bill Shorten is lower. So yeah. they've got this problem, and we'll, we'll examine that later during the discussion. And we're going to go to questions from the floor for the last half hour, definitely, so do be thinking <laughs> about what you'd like to ask. But in the meantime, I'm going to see if Peter Park is here. Peter, are you here? Like, give us a wave if you are. Um, Peter's question was, who will be the next Prime Minister and how long will that person last? (laughs) That's a great question. Mark Kenny. Well, that's who's going to win the election, isn't it, Uh, really? Uh, And I think at this stage, and I said this on Insider, so I'm going to stick with it, Um, I I think 
you know, Labor's going to win the election uh, for reasons that have been stated here. I think it's uh, the polls have been fixed for some time. I think there's a real possibility that this election campaign won't change much at all. And we're talking here about all these different aspects of it, and I think we're compelled to do so, and there's a lot of effort going into it, and there's a lot of effort going into interpreting what's going on. But a lot of voters have clearly made up their minds some time ago. Others aren't that engaged and won't be engaged until you know the last minute, and so we'll miss a lot of this stuff anyway. I think, anyway, in the, in the, in, to, to come to the point, I think um, Bill Shorten will be Prime Minister. Uh, the question in my mind is whether Labor wins big or wins sort of, uh, you know, a very modest majority. There is, a, there is a chance that the coalition could survive, but I would put that as my third most likely option. And just quickly on the question of who will then, you know, be opposition leader, I think it, that is an interesting question because um, if I was Josh Frydenberg, and I think he is probably their best leader going forward, uh, I wouldn't take the job straight away, because especially if Labor wins big, I think... That's a job for someone else to do for a while. Mark, how, though, does Bill Shorten get across the line when his popularity rating is so poor? Well, how, how can Australia... You know, I mean, I wonder how voters will respond in the end. You know, do people ignore that statistic to their peril? My theory about that is that it's already priced in, and that's why we see it in the, in the polls at the mm-hmm. moment, that people are saying, I want to vote for the Labor Party for the policies or I want to vote for the team, and I think this uh, Shorten does at least uh, offer the prospect of running a sort of a more Bob Hawke-style government. He doesn't have Hawke's charisma, obviously. Yeah. That's one of the problems. <laughs> but, if he, I, oh. but, but he does have a good, strong team. I mean, there's a big number of those that, that have been ministers before, and I would throw Keneally in there as well because I'm sure she'll be on the front bench yeah. after the election. If I can jump in yeah. here, right? The research do show that the leader does matter, but it doesn't matter... All that much. It does make an impact, but not for everyone, not for all the time, right? So even I think it's not just a, a match. I think there's a bit of a danger in Australia, but also in other countries, where we think the leader will fix everything and will make people vote for us. Right? Let's that's talk why about that research because we're already. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole great thing about having you all here. You're actual experts, rather than anyone who just pontificates with no yeah. research under it <laughs> altogether. And I can happily say that the leader doesn't matter at all. But you can tell me the research. Yeah, if you look at the Australian election studies that the ANU has been running, right? And then I see some of my students took my class this summer, right? We've seen this, right? It does, leader does matter, but it doesn't matter... Like for every, like I said, for everyone for all the time, right? So it is. There's other reason people would vote, even if they don't like Bill Shorten. They might just hate Scott Morrison more, or they just meet, like you know, that's or maybe not. But I'm just maybe joking. But that might just be they just don't like the Liberals, or they much rather have someone they don't like and still have the policy, a change of policy, mm. right? So it's just the way you put priorities on different. Uh, thing that matter, right? So even if pe- most people say yes, they would prefer Scott Morrison as prime minister. That's just a, a when you go to the poll, you don't vote for them. You vote for your 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 local representative, right? So that's not you're not voting for him. Katrine, you're thanks. For that's a, a really great Sorry. point, <laughs> Andrew. Who's going to win? As, who's going to be the prime minister? And how long are they going to last? Uh, I'd say Bill Shorten, <laughs> and I'd say two terms um, because the way Labor changed the rules, number one, um, had I had. Uh, Longman and Braddon last year gone the way of the coalition. It would have been Anthony Albanese leading the Labor Party right now. Um, <laughs> that's what I heard. I heard a lot of people talking about that internally. 
Um, Albo saying, for one. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He, well, he's a better retail politician. He won the popular vote of the party anyway for leader. Um, and he was starting to make an early run at it anyway. He made a few statements at the time, in particular about immigration. That was the big one. He's left. And for him to talk about immigration the way he did really said, hey, I'm making a, a, the groundwork at the moment just in case things go astray. And now maybe it was part of the, a party tactic as well. I'm not saying he was being very um, you know, dark about it or secretive or trying to be a little bit nefarious with Bill Shorten at all. Um, I think it was more the party thinking, well, just in case this backfires and Bill can't win those Queensland marginals, we have to get rid of him now. We can't wait and hopefully he'll go quick, quickly and quietly. But I think long-term, Bill Shorten will have to stay in the top job for um, a couple terms. And that's the thing too, like Katrine said, it's like sometimes we have to get used to our Prime Minister's. Um, we not, may not like them, but we, should we at the same time? Because they're leading the country and some of the decisions they have to make, you think, wow, they're pretty big. They're not going to be popular at times making the bigger, harder decisions um, which benefit us in the long term. Sometimes short term, it hurts you. And um, I think I'll give credit to Labor's strategy early on in this election campaign to talk about some things which are unpopular with people. Negative gearing is not a vote winner. Capital gains tax is not a vote winner. And they know this, but they've crossed that bridge anyway, knowing that, and thinking, well, we won't be accused of getting in and suddenly going, hey, guess what, everyone? Here's policy X we never talked about, but it's consistent with us as Labor. So and they're not doing that this time. And the other thing I think Labor are doing really well, which feeds into the Bill Shorten narrative quite well, is um, first point of contact with government services in the future. He's trying to, to ease the cost there. He's trying to make it a more positive experience because a lot of the first point of contact so far for government experiences of most people, the frontline stuff, is negative. Um, you look at Centrelink and how they've recovered money. That's been a disaster for Scott Morrison. Want to talk about immigration? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, application for citizenship? <laughs> yeah, like all this sort of frontline stuff. I, mean, I was talking to someone the other day from the UK and, he, and um, Mark was there and, and he said it cost me $12,000 to apply for permanent residency. And I thought, whoa, yeah. 12K, that's a lot of money. And, and so these frontline services, which we're all getting told cost more and more money, and we're basically moving to a user-pay system, Bill's going to say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to deliver the services for you. Now, that's similar to Daniel Andrews in Victoria, where he started off very unpopular, but he's got people around. Gladys, particularly in the New South Wales, did the same thing. She started off a little bit on the nose, but she swung people around. She won that very close election where everyone thought Michael Daly at the last second would be Premier. And turns out, no, he will not be even the opposition leader. So, um, you know, politics is a strange game, that's mm. for sure. Frank, I'm going to ask you a two-barrel question. One, who's going to be Prime Minister and how long will they last? And do you think that the political parties are showing different uh, attitudes, different policies to different generations right now? Mm. Well, um, any uh, leader of the opposition, any opposition is always running against history, mm. always, because, you know, the figures tell us that there have been about a dozen changes of government at elections since 1901. That's including 1975, which technically wasn't a change of government at election, but I'm including it. And I think 31 times governments have been returned. So it's always a special occasion when there's, when there's a change of government. That said, um, voters don't necessarily uh, vote for people, leaders that they love. I don't think that uh, voters loved Malcolm Fraser in 1975. 
I don't think that voters loved John Howard in 1996. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that voters didn't love Tony Abbott in uh, 2013. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's a mistake to imagine that you need a kind of Bob Hawke uh, kind of charisma or a Kevin Rudd type of charisma, a different kind, uh, to, to be elected. Um, so look, I mean, on all the figures, all the signs, all the evidence we have at the moment, I'd predict Labor. I mean, you never know, of course. Um, I think... Uh, and I, I don't think... It so I suppose you're the only one on the panel who says you never know. Well, you, never, you, do, you, know. you do never know. You do never know. You do never know. Uh, but, yeah, and, and I don't think it, it would be... Uh, I think it's unlikely to be a one-term government. You don't, again, you don't know. Uh, mm. I think because there virtually aren't any. So there virtually aren't yeah, any. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's right. I mean, the last genuinely one-term government at federal level was the Scullin government yeah, in, yeah. in 1929 to... Which is a way back now. A very long yeah. time ago. And we did have unemployment, you know, at about 25%. Um, so, you know, uh, that's... And I think its primary vote when it got... Its two-party preferred vote when it got in was 58%. Was it, well, yeah, it was an absolutely... I think it may have been the biggest single election win in Australian history and it didn't even last a term. So, yeah, mm. so, I mean, it, you would expect the government to, to, to be there for a while... Uh, I think the rule changes in the Labor Party that may turn out to be one of Kevin Rudd's most important legacies uh, make it very difficult to get rid of a, a, even an unpopular leader between elections. The transactional costs would be enormous. I mean, you could potentially have a leadership campaign within a political party during a term. I mean, because that's what the rules say. When you have two, three, even four candidates for the leadership of the Labor Party running around the country saying, make me Prime Minister, and, and you know, with a rank-and-file vote. I mean, potentially, that, and I just don't think that that's realistic. So mm. I think that has been an enormous stabilising factor. On Lips both sides. On both sides. Yeah. Lips haven't got, gone yeah. quite as far because they haven't <clears throat> adopted rank-and-file voting. But nonetheless, um, their rule changes also make it very difficult to get rid of a leader between elections. I think that has been a stabilising factor. one of the reasons why Shorten is still there after, you know, what is it, almost six years? Yeah. And I think that'll have an enormous impact on where things go from here. And from the generation perspective? Oh, the generation. Well, look, I think this is uh, a very unusual election in that generational issue and the whole issue of intergenerational injustice, I think, being so powerful. I mean, in the last 20, 25 years, one's existing wealth has become so important within, you know, to individuals but also within families in life experiences in a way that is, is I think, probably unprecedented in Australian history. And, you know, there is no doubt that a, a number of the policies the Labor Party has adopted are around, yes, negative gearing, uh, superannuation, um, minimum wage. Mm. Uh, these, these are designed to appeal to younger people mm. who feel like they're getting their pockets picked. Um, that is, that they're, they're essentially subsidising the... the, the um, uh, lives, lifestyles, if you like, of people much older than them, and whose values are also being held in contempt, I think, also on the conservative side of politics. The so, damn millennials. Um, sorry? The, the damn millennials and the avocado the, toast. Yeah, so the smashed <laughs> avocado. Yeah. And yeah. our colleague Ian McAllister, does yeah. the, the Australian election study, tells us that not only in Australia but elsewhere, 
generational differences are becoming just critical in voting patterns. Mm. Yeah, in fact, he says the most mm, important issue, yeah. not class anymore. Sure. And I think, in this, to bring it back to, to just yeah. pick on that, as it will be very interesting because of the plebiscite of two yeah. years ago. Generally speaking, if you look at trends for registration, mm. Mm. younger people tend to register less than older yeah. people yeah. to vote, and that has changed because of the plebiscite. Yeah. So I think maybe the, the labor are picking up on this a little bit and know that there's a, a huge wave of first-time voters yes. who might not normally have voted now will vote because they are on the list and they have to because yes. it's compulsory. Yes, that's right. And we've got yeah. a good number of them in the audience tonight, which is terrific, so welcome. They're not a they, they're <laughs> us, they're here. Can I show the hands of those in the audience who are under 35 to start? Look at that, that's a huge number. Okay, who's, who's uh, voting in their first election? Great, excellent, excellent. So we're going to get, when we get some questions later, we're going to ask you particularly, you know, whether you feel the political parties are speaking to you. Because one of the things I wonder, just quickly for the panel, given the changes in social media, given the changes in consumption, given the way society has changed, and yes, political parties have changed, but has their approach to voters changed at all in this modern era? Are political parties still expecting that they are the power, whichever political persuasion, they will decide the policies, up to voters to choose for them or against? That is basically the option. And minor parties and independents are just around the edges. Can you see any change in that? Does there need to be change? Let's start with Frank and just move down the panel. Well, I mean, I think political parties at the moment seem very broken. I mean, they've... There is, I mean, the term that political scientists use is electoral professional. That is, mm. they've become sort of organisations utterly dominated by paid officials, mm. by politicians, by those who are essentially doing it for a living, if you like. The rank and file has fallen away. I mean, they're mm. very low. I mean, I love those comparisons with the, the, uh, the numbers of people who belong to this or that football club, for instance. Um, you know, so uh, th that has changed the nature of political parties. It's clear that they're finding it very difficult to plug into certain aspects of public opinion. We saw this radically revealed, I think, in, the, in relation to same-sex marriage, where both, political, both of the major political parties fumbled it. I mean, they showed over a number of years that they were unable to register that really powerful change that had occurred in people's opinions around an issue that many of them continued to dismiss. Oh, it's second order, they said. It's third order. People don't care about that. They care about their hip pockets. Well, it became pretty clear, didn't it, that people cared passionately about it. It was a powerful symbolic issue. And the political parties showed, both Labor and the Coalition showed, they didn't know how to deal with it. And I think that has a lot to do with the disconnect, if you like, of the electoral professional party from some of the key streams of public opinion in, in society. And um, yeah, look, uh, parties are definitely changing towards young people. Um, Mainly the information. The information age means that there's so much stuff online now. There's too much information, in fact. Um, and we're seeing that change in messaging strategy. It, it is becoming a lot simpler. Maybe that's at a cost of policy discussion. Um, I'll leave that to other people to decide. Uh, but it's interesting, too, how now they don't want you to be a member of the party anymore. They'd just like you to volunteer or create content. That's really going to be noticeable this election. Um, the parties are making direct calls to action. Both leaders I've seen so far on social media have said, like, share, create your own content, do memes, we'll um, share your, your content on our platforms, we'll give you your 15 seconds of fame, your 10,000 likes on uh, different platforms. It's becoming very, very noticeable. Um, things like Snapchat, where you can make your own filters, um, they've become very popular as well. 
Um, but that's, that's the other trend we've noticed a lot more of. There was a survey out only today which talked about fake news. And the people who fear that most at risk from fake news are millennials and Gen X, which is crazy, right? They're, they're the young part of the market. And you think they're the ones who know how to hunt down information and find it, but yet they're the ones most scared about it because we have so much information and sifting through it's really now becoming quite hard to do. Uh, I think just anecdotally, I was talking with a student two weeks ago who wants to do honors just because she noticed at a party meeting that all the people who were talking were this older white men, middle class people. And she was like, well, I mean, that doesn't really match, right, about what I think, what younger people think or younger generation think, what a, a society. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Brilliant society is just going to look like. So I think there's still, when it comes to party membership and party involvement, although it's a bit difficult to get numbers, right? Just anecdotally, it seems to be the case that it's still kind of dominating with a bit of the what we see of the politician looking like. And that kind of probably create a disconnect with a younger generation, I would say. Yeah, I think political parties are uh, have been struggling for a long time, but in some ways they are starting, or at least they have the, the green shoots of some sort of uh, recovery, but it's a different kind of engagement that they're having with their members now. So they're offering different ways of getting involved, and they're, they're, I think they now recognise that they do have to give people some sort of dividend for being a member. So um, it's not just about you know coming along and handing out how to vote cards and doing all the grunt work while you know, the older generation takes all the spoils. And, and so there is a, um, uh, a you know, we, we see this with uh, Labor giving uh, rank-and-file members the votes in the leadership, for example. These sorts of things, I think, are inevitable because people just don't... You know, Australians have shown, Australians have shown they're, they're not joiners uh, in, in huge numbers unless there's a good reason to be joining. And mm. uh, as you say, Frank, I mean, you know, people are more inclined to be members of of football teams um, um, than they are of political parties. But if the if the issues are right and if there is actually some sense that you can have some sway in it, I think, you know, that's the way to go. And I think Labor's numbers have actually rebounded a bit from an idea of some years ago. Thanks, everyone. I mean, that's a really interesting discussion, and that reflects questions from uh, Greg Bell and Don Scott-Kimmons, hope you're in the audience tonight, about those issues, trust and modernisation of parties and uh, and leadership. Don Scott Kemmons, chemist. Don, are you Don, are you, Don here? Um, Don asked, <laughs> "Why is there no accountability in Australian government?" I think it's a great question, and he quoted things such as the vet fee help, NBN submarines squandering the minerals boom. Accountability in government in general, not just the current government, earlier governments. Can we just get some ideas? <laughs> You're nodding there, Frank. So you start, let's go that way on the panel. Well, I, th- I think there's now a hell of a lot of momentum for, for a, a significant change in the integrity system at the federal level. I mean, the lack of a, of a corruption body, I think, now is seen as a major gap. Um, there are arguments about this. I mean, we have 
again, experts in corruption, and not in actually practising it, but in studying it here the, at the university. Some people are really good at that. And not, not all have been convinced that, you know, a, a kind of uh, ICAC-style thing is the way to go. Mm. Uh, but n- nonetheless, I think there is now uh, overwhelming support for that. And, and look, there, there are some pretty fishy stories at the moment that have been circulating around aspects of particularly awarding contracts and so on uh, at the federal level over the last, what, six, eight months that uh, I, I think have consolidated that kind of attitude. Yeah. Uh, my, my take on this is it's more about where executive power is now. And I remember when the clerk of the Senate, Harry Evans, left, he made this great speech or um, and, he, and he talked about how under Kevin Rudd in particular executive power had become more concentrated with the Prime Minister's um, office and I think that's what we're seeing a lot more of is that's really focused now. Scott Morrison hasn't changed it, I don't think Bill Shorten will if he becomes Prime Minister um, they're becoming a lot more presidential in how they do that but at the same time that gives that feeling and sense that we've lost our transparency in our politics that's picked up by the fact where people ask me all the time, Andrew, can you tell us about advertising spend in political campaigns? And I say, not really. It's tracked publicly by people who've got a concern over it. The parties themselves are not transparent about it. There was a hack of um, Australian Parliament before, or late last year from memory, this year maybe it was. The parties were hacked. They still haven't come clean about what was hacked and what was taken. And I'm thinking, why aren't you? you you've got to be more accountable in this. Mm-hmm. This is, this is yeah. appalling. And campaign finance, campaign um, ca- communications, the campaign laws right now, I can do anything I want on social media. Anything. Apart from really go hardcore, really violent stuff probably. Um, and we saw that only today where um, a far-right group posted a message purported to be from Shane Warne saying how he was anti-immigration, it took Facebook nearly until the end of today to pull that down. And I thought, wow, it just says it all. That, you know, the parties out there are going to be more accountable for their actions, but it starts with them, not when they're in government. It starts mm-hmm. right now. I mean, to build on from that, like, party wants to get elected. I think in the end of the day, they will do what they think is the best for them to get yeah. elected, no matter if it means turning a blind eye to some issue as such as hacking or accepting dodgy contract or uh, helping out with their network, right? So because politics is also about the network and I think some of the issue, Catherine, that you were raising, it's about like, well, okay, getting contract with my friends or giving a a turn back, right? And that's, I mean, it's not just about Australia, right? Coming a bit of my comparative perspective, right? I can talk to you a bit about the Trudeau scandal right now, right? It's all (laughs) in Canada, which is all about contract Right, and making sure company gets employed. So yeah. a lot of these things are about getting re-election and making sure the party gets re-elected, even if it means that there's you don't really take into account accountability. You'll just do what you think is best, I think. But surely yeah. if people are going to have trust in politics, they've got yeah. to feel that the decisions being made, the yeah. contracts being made are going to be fair. Mm. And if they're going to be yeah. cut out of that because they're not of the right mm. persuasion, no matter which party is in, or they're not going to be fairly awarded, that's going to undermine and the basis like of cost trust. Benefit. They, they're basically betting that the people will forget or will yeah. find something. They will forget or they will think about it and at some point it's going to go away and we'll start talking about something else. In the yeah. meantime, right, to win, I need to do this. 
and hopefully even if it's dodgy, I'll forget. And then there's some do research that do show that people tend to have a short time span, right? We will quickly forget and move on to the next, the voters will yeah. move on to the next thing. Yeah. So, so Mark, can I just add in here a question from, thanks, thanks, Katrine, from S- Stephen Singh. Are the politi- if the political parties are not telling the truth, how can an election commission or the media hold them and make them accountable? Well, can I just uh, go to the, the, the last point first? Because I just think about that question of trust. I think it's absolutely fundamental, and it's it's um, it's a growing problem in Australian politics. I, I remember, for example, when Mick Young had to step down in I think 1984 uh, because his wife had carried a Paddington bear in in a suitcase, and the uh, uh, the duty hadn't been paid on it. Or when Michael Moore had to, I think that was his name. Um, more anyway, uh, had to resign his ministry because he had carried a colour TV in and he'd said it was a black and white TV and that attracted different duty. Now we have situations where we have um, senior ministers being caught, uh, having had their travel paid for by uh, by a company, that yeah. the travel having been booked through the CEO of that listed company rather than through the normal means, and it goes nowhere. And I think the trouble that Australian voters are, f- are taking from all of these things, and there's, there's, there's controversy surrounding George Christensen at the moment, there's numerous other examples I could go to. Uh, the trouble is that we're seeing, uh, I think, from uh, you know, really bad models like Trump that politicians have worked out when you get pegged with these things, you just ride them out because, as Katrine says... The, the, the caravan moves on. People will start talking about something else. So now the model seems to be you just simply deny, reject, criticise, marginalise the people who are asking you the questions, depict them as being politically motivated themselves and unfair, as Trump does very effectively, and before long the caravan has moved on and you've got away with it. And that leaves a scarred electorate, an electorate that is just thinking... What's going on here? Where are the standards? What happened to ministerial responsibility? I think but it's of course, really that's so. You know, some of those current implications in the Trump uh, time are impacting now. But if you go back to the Labor years, it was happening then too. You look at the Rudd Gillard Rudd time and all the interest groups that were in or out of favour during that mm. time. So it's not just. Oh yes, and no, I'm not the suggesting coalition. that no, it is entirely no, no, right. on one side, no. uh, but it has been, I think, getting worse. I mean, we all remember Frank and Polly remember this better than I can. But uh, you know, John Howard started off with a very very, and, and you, you can no doubt too, Catherine, remember that Howard started off with a very kind of prescriptive ministerial code of conduct. He lost six or so ministers in the first year uh, and uh, suddenly realised, well, we can't keep that up. And then that sort of code just kind of stopped being applied. And really, it's been a, a, a downhill slide since then. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, there's so, thank you so much. There's so much to talk about. We've got about half an hour a bit more for questions. So we've got two microphones on either side. There's really only a couple of simple rules. Uh, no party political statements. If you're a candidate... In this, <laughs> well, it has happened. It happened. It weren't of you here last time. It actually happened. So if you're a candidate, lovely. We wish you well. Whatever side you're on, but no questions tonight, uh, and no campaigning in the room. Thanks. That's just my rule, not the ANU's. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing, um, and no, no political statements either. It's really this is important. That this is a bipartisan, friendly, open discussion with all all views respected, and we're really keen to hear from everyone. So his hand up here. We've got um, microphones on both sides. Excellent. So can our microphone person on this side? Where are we? Great. Oh, great. Straight up. We'll just start in that back row. Nathan, thanks. Terrific. And then we'll just move through as many questions. Just keep it short. If you're from the university in an official role and denominate, if that's relevant, great. We'd love to hear. Otherwise, just first name is terrific. 
Uh, hi, um, my name is Gia. Um, so this morning I was listening to the radio and um, listening to Sarah Hansen Young say that uh, following the election, um, there might be an opportunity for a Labour-Green coalition in the Senate to do great things on climate change and other things. Um, I guess the question is, last time you know, there was the, that sort of an arrangement, um, you know, I guess lot, quite a few segments of the public didn't appreciate it, um, and I don't want to equate <laughs> Greens with One Nation uh, at all, uh, but I, I suspect for a lot of people on the centre-right of politics in Australia and conservative Australians would find that sort of coalition just as offensive as the centre-left Australian would find One Nation and coalition uh, coalition. So I guess the question really is, how does Labor deal with, uh, particularly if it faces a difficult Senate and Greens becomes a critical uh, sort of uh, partner there, um, how, how does it sort of deal with this tension? And I guess it goes to that whole tension of the left side of Labor versus the right of Labor. So I think probably it's get, get both Mark and Frank on both of these because the current political impact of that and the historical impact. It's a really good question because I think it does go to uh, some real p- political sensitivities that arise from that deal that Gillard did with the, with the Greens and other independents mm-hmm. to hold that minority government together. Um, and I, I think Labor's, you know, being very cool about this. They're not interested in any sort of uh, any sort of discussion about it, any sort of arrangement there. I have seen some analysis which suggests that it is virtually impossible to imagine a situation where uh, Labor and the Greens, but between them, will have 39 votes in the Senate, uh, which is what they would need in order to uh, to get legislation through without having to go to anyone else. So I think it's kind of unlikely that there'll be uh, that situation. And I think even if there were, uh, there won't be any formal arrangement for it. Uh, I did hear some of that same interview you were talking about this morning with Sarah Hanson-Young, and I think she said there was at one stage uh, that you know she, she was hoping to drag the Labor Party to the left. I don't think uh, the <laughs> Labor Party is particularly interested in having that said uh, during this election campaign either, Not, notwithstanding the fact that it has taken a more progressive position uh, than Labor parties in the past. You know, there's a, there's a fairly clear, as I was saying before, delineation between the two sides, and Labor's not walking away from that. But I think it's a really, really good question, and you can sort of, you know, it goes to the to the political realities and sensitivities that arise from some fairly bad optics and political damage done in that period between 2010 and 2013. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree entirely with what Mark said. I don't, I, it'll be, I think, a pretty transactional relationship. The conversations I've had with uh, Labor MPs up there suggest as much that they see it in those sorts of terms. Um, beyond that, I mean, it'd be very interesting to see what kind of Senate we end up with, I think. Uh, this is the first time we've had, obviously, a half-Senate election under the new rules, the new laws that were uh, in place for the 2016 double dissolution. I mean... I suspect Labor will probably face a, maybe a slightly less difficult Senate than the Conservatives have faced over the last few years. Um, but, you know, the reality is that they're going to be dependent on Greens' votes for a lot of the kinds of things they want to do. Um, but as Mark says, they'll probably have to look elsewhere as well. And there is some fear that One Nation... Uh, there is some fear around that One Nation is going to end up with as many as four in the Senate. Um, now, that's probably a worst-case scenario, and I apologise to anyone from One Nation here, but I'm pretty confident there isn't anyone. Um, you can't ever assume that, Mark. Great. Over this side. Terrific. Hi. Uh, my name's Evan, and I'm just wondering why it seems like farming communities and therefore the National Party are so slow to get behind action on climate change 
given their constituency is so at risk of climate change impacts? Katrina, I was going to ask you as a political scientist. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah, the history yeah. Of, of the National Party here is not something you've been studying. No, course, sorry. But, yeah. No, and please, I've been, this is my second Australian election, so <laughs> that's why you have an historian here. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do yeah. you, have you looked at all about at the National Party's mm. political processes, their approach to policy? Yeah. I don't know that. Sorry. <laughs> don't really know that much about it. But to go back to a bit of the, the question, right, I think a lot of these, sometimes people are not really good at identifying their own interests, right? And it's kind of, there's a huge literature, or they're usually, I mean, thinking just about the United States where you see... Uh, uh, poor people without health care voting for a party who promise not to give them health care, right? So you see this, that actually sometimes people are not very good at identifying which party is the best for their own personal interest as they vote for something else. So not just material interest, but I guess in this sense, right, what they perceive it to be the proper value. So my guess here would be that the, the national voters would see that actually... Uh, Climate change is not something that, even if they, you can say objectively that's going to affect them, they don't perceive that as something that's going to affect them. They will see something else as to be a more uh, a, a pressing uh, a pressing issue, immigration, right? So there's a way that, maybe to go back to Andrew's research, right, with marketing or with the way we build campaign, that we're able to basically... And not tell people what to think, but tell them what to think about, right? And if you're a farmer, don't think about climate change, think about yeah. help, tell, think <clears throat> about something else, right? And I think that's where the marketing and the political party does to, yeah. it's not just because, it's because they don't think that, it, yes, it's going to affect them, but they just don't think that is the most pressing thing, right? Thanks. Now, just to see where we're at with questions, let's get hands up. Can we get some, we'll get these two down the front <laughs> if we can go one and then two. Great, thanks. And then we'll get over that side. Thank you so much. So down here, and then, thanks, just in the front. Great, and then behind. Terrific, thank you. Hello, my name's Michelle. So I'm wondering um, if you could shed light on the prospects for people elected to Parliament to debate policies with dignity and respect. <laughs> Yeah, well. Well, you seriously? Okay. Um, (laughs) But people want their people want their subjects to be debated seriously. They do, and I think it's and quite clearly this gets to the lack of trust in politicians that debates Mm. are not treated seriously. Everything is treated as a contest. Uh, You know, winner takes all. That's right. Is is it possible to change? I guess is the question. It's a it's a very good question, um, and. I think it actually goes to, to some extent to the previous question, and that is that there's a tendency for issues to fall into one camp or the other and then to be argued, you know, prosecuted from those positions irrespective of the merits of the, of, the, of the case, of the policy question. And I think that also makes voters very cynical. So a question like climate change becomes this kind of matter of the left, and if you're in the farm constituency, your party... You know, questions whether the science is right and questions the whole thing. And so you end up with a sort of a shouty argument about it. And there's, this has been a sort of a, uh, a process, I think, that we've seen in politics for a long time. It's, you know, it's kind of inherently adversarial, our parliament. And it has, I think, helped foster a culture 
where questions are always approached in that adversarial way. What's my margin of strategic advantage on this question? And how do I find it? How do I maximise my vote and minimise the credit going to my, you know, my opponent? And um, we've seen, I, I guess, a, a descent in that civility in our public space, not just in our parliament. In fact, our parliament is very shouty, but it also has... You know some rules, so there are some limits on it. Question time, obviously, is a bit of a low point, and it's the one that everyone sees most of. But mostly, the parliament is relatively civil. I just think it's largely unproductive all the time because of that that adversarialism. My problem probably is more broadly with political discourse in this country and probably in other democracies because of what we now are able to do with self-publishing on on uh, social media and the like. Yeah, so, Andrew, what do, you, do you see any change in that civility? Um, not at the moment. Um, looking at the debate online, it's, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Um, you know, I'm scared to do stuff on social media sometimes because of the negative feedback you get so quickly, within seconds sometimes, from someone who just wants to take a pot shot at you. They haven't even read the stuff you've done. And you think, you know, I put a few hours and slash months slash years into this research. And someone comes along and goes, you know, guns are blazing. But, yeah, yeah. but it's also the short-termism. And what I'd like to see probably in politics is, and this is what Parliament's meant to be about, right, um, is maybe having a lot more bipartisan approaches to some policy areas and sitting down and going, look, we have to do this the right way, regardless who's in power, because it's too big. And I heard a business leader late last year say, look, the problem with politicians right now is that we're coming up with issues in Australia which are so complex, you can't deal with them in one election cycle. They are stretching across election cycles. And a lot of them now point to the NBN as being a case in point where that was handled by both sides of government, the NBN. It's not just one. And they look at that and go, well, that's what happens when you guys play politics on a big issue like this. We blow $50 billion, but also the economy goes backwards. And that, that sense, um, and the Grattan Institute picked it up today with their orange paper, and they talked about some of these issues where if we don't deal with them in a longer-term perspective and more bipartisan um, and more respect, to touch on your point, then we're going backwards too quickly. We're starting to go backwards against other OECD nations. Things like education, for example. I mean, we notice it here because we work at ANU, but um, you, know, you look around the world where they're putting more money into education, you think, wow, they're getting ahead of the game a lot. China is a very good example on their higher education sector where they're pouring so much money in. How they ban plastics. That says a lot about bipartisan, right? It does. Question over here. Thanks. Hello, my name's Dawn. My question's really for you, Katrine. Given your uh, research into um, the pathway for women, both in the LNP and the ALP, into um, ministerial or even positions in in the government, I just wondered, did you do... And and the concern about the... uh, if you have a target, then the calibre of your candidate is probably very poor or, or um, not sure about it. I just wondered, did you do any research into the males' uh, pathway into um, uh, ministerial positions both on both parties? Not specifically on ministerial position, uh, but basically when it comes just to candidate, right, what we did, we compare men and women path, right, that's in both parties. And what we have found in the Labour Party is that the women actually, like, depending on, I mean, it goes back to how you define qualified, right, and what is a qualified, what is a good candidate, right, and if that's really much what it means and how we define it. And we tend to define it based on what men have been doing for the past 
40, 50 years. And they, the question then is like, well, is that a good measure of a, a qualified candidate, right? And what we have seen in the, the Labour Party is that, right, what I was talking about earlier is like the diversity. But if we just add this up, right, the, the, if we call them the quota women, they are more qualified than the men. They have done, they are more likely to have been elected before. They are more likely to have worked in the political party. They are more likely to have community experience defined at large, right? And that's just, and because we have trying in my, my research to try to just take a bit of a broader definition of what is someone that's qualified. is someone that's not necessarily come from lawyer or business, but someone who also can come from community, parent-teacher or hospital board or other things, right? But one of the, the from the gender critique that I sometimes I can make is this discourse is that we just take look at the men and says, well, the men are automatically qualified and as such we try to measure up the women, which I think is probably a wrong way of thinking about it, right? And that what is being qualified, we need to think a bit differently, is that, like, you know, even if you're not from a corporate lawyer background, even if you're a school teacher, even if you've been involved in community organization, that does not mean you're not qualified to be a candidate. You're bringing a different set of experience to it, which might be good or might be bad, but I think I'm becoming very frustrated with this idea of like qualification because it's very much based on we just assume that the men who are there are qualified. Thanks, Katrina. I think that really provides a fresh, really fresh perspective. I think that's great and good to hear about that research. Let's have a look on this side where there are questions, just so we can try and get through as many. Hands up high. That's great. Just want to try and perhaps get a few back to back so we can, um, yeah, down the front here. Other people on that side, just so that we can... Um, really keen to get all your questions. Thanks. Uh, g'day. Thanks you, uh, to all of you. Um, I'm a history honours student here. G'day, Frank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great work. Planting <laughs> <laughs> <Finding> questions. <laughs> um, uh, not with, notwithstanding what you said earlier about their prospects, Mark, um, uh, One Nation just had kind of a shocker poll where they polled, I think, 4% in the news poll down from about six on average for the last couple of years. Um, so I'm just wondering what you all think about uh, whether the NRA scandal is something that um, might actually stick until the election, or is that one of the caravans that moves on? Um, and um, I guess secondarily, uh, given how kind of fragmented the far right is, is in Australia, um, extra par- parliamentarily, uh, uh, do you think that the prospects in, ele- in elections of one nation is a good indicator of its um, of the fortunes of the far right in Australia? And it's interesting to see with New South Wales election just having happened and uh, gone of the uh, Liberal Democrats in New South Wales and two one nation back in yeah, the house. Yeah. I think the the, um, uh, the question about uh, one nation and the, the, the far right, I mean, sorry, the National Rifle Association links and all of that, it, it may have done some... Your, your question goes to whether that accounts for the drop in their vote. vote. And the optimistic view is is that it does. You know, that, that it's, it's... Even some of One Nation's constituents said, well, hang on, that's just beyond the pale. You know, we're not, we're not interested in changing Australian's gun laws or talking to the Americans or, or these kinds of things. And there have been some other shenanigans going on in One Nation as well. Um, you know, with James Ashby being expelled from the Parliament and, you know, arguments with Brian Burston and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that's the optimistic version. The, the, the pessimistic version is it's just a margin of error, um, you know, sort of uh, 
issue with the poll and that next time it'll be 5% or 6% again. Um, and, and as I say, there is, there is some analysis around by the Australia Institute that I was reading today that, that does say that there's a reasonable prospect of them picking up a second senator in Queensland and a senator in WA and possibly one in South Australia. And I think that, uh, going to Frank's point before about uh, the Senate that uh, the next government, which is probably going to be a Labor government, would inherit, uh, is uh, it, it could be it, it could be more difficult than um, uh, you know than we, we would like to imagine. Yeah. So uh, for any of those who aren't like following to. quite so closely the percentage support for One Nation, this latest news poll had them at about four percent. Is that right? Mm. Up down from about six percent, but consistently over probably the last six or eight years. Greens, for example, have just pretty much stayed at 10. They go 9, 9, 10, 11, 10. They haven't really moved. So it's interesting. What do you think, Frank? What's going on there? Well, I don't know about the Greens in particular. I mean, I, the One, one Nation, one nation vote, yeah. is a, clearly an avenue for protest voting of various kinds. Um, again, AES, Australian Election Study, you know, finds some pretty distinctive things. They're very gloomy about issues around immigration and multiculturalism, very Anglo. Uh, they, and, and this isn't meant to sound patronising, but they have a lower level of formal education um, than, than you know, other voters. Um, you know, so there are particular characteristics there. Look, what I'm still struck by, in Australia, the centre has held so far, as it has, I think, broadly in Canada, as I think <laughs> it has broadly in New Zealand, but it hasn't held everywhere, has it? Uh, it hasn't held in Britain. It hasn't held in the United States, and one could go through various other places. So I think, you know, at, at the moment we're, we're talking about uh, still a relatively small percentage of the voting public uh, that do have very gloomy, set views that are very distinctive in certain ways, um, but let's not exaggerate uh, their overall significance. We, they, yes, they get Senate representation for very good reasons. We have a system of proportional representation in the Senate that provides that, that opportunity, and that's no doubt a problem for all, all governments of all shades, but I, I think we do need to keep one nation in proportion. Yeah. All right, good answer, yeah. Frank. Thank you. Let's just have a look on this side, all hands up. So let's see um, where we've got. So let's, can we take one and then two just as questions, one after the other? Thanks. There and then there, and we'll answer them both. Thanks. Thank you. My name's Jenny. I'm just interested in this, what seems to be a bit of a um, paradox, that we've got this disillusioned, disengaged electorate that everybody talks about, but we've got half a million people doing vote compass in a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? That's a great question. And we'll get this question back to back and we'll answer both. Just straight up there. Great, thanks. Um, thank you. Uh, so this question is for Katrine. Um, so uh, we've talked a lot about... Um, how personal characteristics are playing uh, representativeness or the charisma of the leader. Um, so I was wondering, do systems characterized by party discipline like ours uh, make personal uh, characteristics less salient? So in the sense that yeah. when people, uh, gender and background are important, but when people start talking about economy or taxes, they become, they recede mm -hmm. into the background. And when I look um, at systems in the United States, uh, whose politics we all know a little bit about, uh, personal characteristics do matter a lot, uh, and they do have less discipline and more individualism. So, yeah, gr yeah. both great questions. Katrina, yeah, you can answer both. I mean, and that, that <laughs> dichotomy, absolutely. So you start uh, for, for the electoral compass one. People who have done it 
my guess, my inch, is that they're very different from the general Australian population. Right? The people who will take the time to fill up these things will be the people who are generally interested in politics, generally like want to see where they have, they know where they are, but they want to see what is going to spit out at them. Right? So I'm guessing these people are different right, than the rest of the Australian population. There's still but, a lot of people. I yeah. mean, if you ask people to, you know, everyone to come and do a survey on uh, yeah. cooking or something like that, you're unlikely to get half a million people in three days. Mm. You know, There's a lot, a lot of people. bored people out there sitting in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> It, look, it's you yeah. know the old joke about the bank will only provide a loan to someone who doesn't need it. Uh, well, I suspect that uh, <laughs> um, the vote compass tells you which where your political allegiances lie, and I reckon ninety percent of people who do it know where their vote allegiances <laughs> lie before they do yeah. it because they're sort of engaged, uh, so, which goes to Katrine's point, mm-hmm. I think. And oh, sorry, I just want to yeah. the second yeah. question, right on party discipline. Uh, yes, there's party discipline, but there's also research that show that when you actually have more women in political parties, like elected, it actually can change the party platform, right? So that has been kind of show that actually having more women would be lead to political party uh, taking speaking more about issues such as healthcare, education, uh, changing uh, a little bit less militaristic, a little bit more health, more education, right? So even though if you have party discipline, right, where you actually have to vote the way you do, so it doesn't, you don't have the agency to say, I'm a woman, I should be voting this way, but my party tells me to, you still have other avenues as a woman or as ethnic minorities or as people with disabilities to actually advocate or change the way that politics is done. It might not be the way people vote, but it can be behind the scene, the way we talk about it and doing it. Thanks, Katrine. Now, who's on this side? That We've got probably time for... Let's just take those two questions back to back if we can and we'll see where we're at. Thank you. Hi there. My name's Jonathan. We've had the major parties falling over themselves to provide tax cuts, but a number of surveys indicate that people would actually be happy to pay higher taxes and get better services. My question is, um, do we actually know how Australians, what influences Australian voters? Uh, Is it the extent to which it's collectivist public good and altruistic values, or is it really more about uh, individual benefit? Great, thanks. And the question just two rows behind. Hi, everyone. Um, I was just wondering what politicians know that I clearly don't that makes them think that continually obfuscating and dodging questions <laughs> is better than actually answering them. I mean, I would, I would love to see a politician just say, oh, yeah, I screwed up, um, and then move on. I mean, it goes to trust, it goes to accountability, but I know politicians have always done this, but I feel as though this campaign, it's at a whole new level of, well... Atrocious, Ina- inane, yeah. Inane, yeah. 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 Can I take... Um, yeah, I remember I asked Kevin right back when he was um, opposition leader and there was talk, you may recall, of a late switch to Peter Costello. Um, and I asked him at a sort of a doorstop in Parliament House whether uh, he would be as happy facing Peter Costello as, um, you know, as John Howard. And he answered, well, that's a matter for the Liberal Party. And I said, sorry, it's a matter for the Liberal Party what you think. <laughs> Which... Which you know, which was a pretty impertinent thing to say, and, and he and he let me know it. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it sort of goes to your point. Um, 
there are all these fudges that we just have to put up with, and I, I really do wonder why uh, politicians think they're going to, uh, you know, curry favour with voters because the voters aren't mugs. If they're watching it, if they're engaged enough to be watching this interview, they probably want to know what your answer is, not just some sort of verbal tennis match where uh, it's always being belted back across the net, and and they, and, they, and their you know their index of success is to have got out of it without having said anything. So, Katrina and Andrew, can I get you both to comment on both of those questions? Uh, tax cuts and services, people being prepared to uh, pay more for services, and this idea of politicians answering questions. Um, on, on tax cuts versus services, I, I think people do want more frontline services. I, I think I talked about that, about that before, about um, how Labor are trying to put this... Um, it's called touchpoint theory. And it's big in marketing where you talk about consumer touch points, where the consumer touches the brand, so to speak, or engages the brand in a very tangible sense. And I think that's what politicians look for with, with tax cuts for. They think to themselves, hang on, what can I give you straight away to let you know that I've done my job, that I'm rewarding you for your vote in, in me, and here's a tangible return in your bank account. So it, it comes uh, out today that the ATO has said no tax cuts will happen on July 1st because... That Parliament has to sit and the bill needs royal assent and all that will probably be beyond the scope of um, that first week back of Parliament. It'll be too quick. It'll have to happen really quick, go through the Senate, no questions asked, and be straight through. This is for either side, by the way. So none of us will be getting a tax cut on July 1st. And it was the ATO <laughs> which did it. To go to the second question about honesty, you think they go, well, hang on. And Bob Hawke did this really well when he was running in 83. He made this great statement. I wasn't, I wasn't a little back then. But anyway, he, he made this statement at the time going, you know what, I can't promise anything because I'm not in government. I have to look at the books first. What I'd like to do is as follows. And he was great at doing those aspirational statements, those let's do things better. I'll give you better of X, Y, Z. And they're usually services again, which is funny because Labor's often accused by the coalition of not being very concerned about government. And here they are going, but hang on, we'll give you out more services to people, more frontline, more touch points. So it gets, I think, to the second point as well, being honest about Thanks, these things. Uh, from a voter perspective, human beings are complex, I would say. <laughs> so it cannot be the case where I can say, like, oh, all Australian vote this way. No, right? People are complex. There's some people who would prefer tax cuts. There are yeah. some people who would prefer more services, right? And the, the issue of an electoral campaign is basically to try to identify the voters who respond the most to your campaign, to your message, yeah. and try to make them vote for you. And if you do that with enough people, then yeah. you get to win an election, right? Who's, who's offering the most value in yeah. your personal yeah. Yeah. But, but the real, But the real danger, I think, for political parties is, is there a different answer to the question when it's asked as a polling question to when the person goes into the polling booth. Yeah. Um, and, that, and, and that's really what a lot of the campaign messaging by uh, the coalition is about at the moment. It's, you know, hammering this idea that Bill Shorten's got his hand in your wallet and they're running those ads with, you know, showing all the cars coming down the highway with a tax sign <laughs> above them and so forth. It's hammering that message because people... There is an altruism, I think, broadly uh, across the electorate. But the question is, will it hold all the way to the polling booth or will people decide, uh, actually, you know, I'm doing it pretty tough already and the last thing I want to do is to see more of my pay, you know, well, retained Thanks by the that. government. Thanks. So let's go back to earlier, first voters. Hands up, first voters, this election. 
So I'm just going to get the microphone around because we want to hear what are the big issues for you. Can we hear from the two women in the back row there? That would be great. What, what are the type of topics? <laughs> no, we're keen to hear. What are the topics and, uh, from each of you? That would be great. And then we'll come over here. Terrific. Please, yeah. <laughs> we're putting you on the spot. I do apologise, not really. We you think I didn't you. sign Thanks. up for this? <laughs> um, hey, everyone. I'm Ella. Um, and I would say that as a 19-year-old, most of my information about like forming my political opinion probably comes through social media. And the only parties that I really see on social media are probably the Greens and Labor. So if I want to find out about Liberal or One Nation, I would have to go about that myself. And that's kind of a big ask. <laughs> um, I mean, I personally have, but I know that most people wouldn't. Thanks, so. yeah. that's great. And what are the big issues for you? Like, what are the two topics of issues that are interesting and important to you? Um, I'd say probably climate change, definitely. Um, and also, like, economy-related issues, because, like, it's going to affect you in the future. You yeah. can't just think about right now, which is what I think a lot of um, young people are attracted to, yeah. those kind of policies. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. Up here. Oh, hi, my name's Layla, and probably one of the biggest issues that my friends and I talk about the most would be the environment and what policies or lack thereof that has been made by the government, and also as well, like, the economy, like, are we ever going to be able to afford a house, mm-hmm. <laughs> or are we going to eat smashed avo for the rest of the <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so well, much. Now, let's have a look at this side. There are quite a few hands up. Here and here, let's have these two. That'd be great. And our first voter down the front there. Yeah, uh, thanks. So there, there, and there. That's great. In my opinion, I reckon um, anti-corruption, like a big <clears throat> in the federal parliament, because I know they got on state level, but they don't have it in the federal parliament. So I think that's a big issue. Yep. And also stability, like because we. We've, I've grown up and all the governments go out like that. They go real quick. <laughs> go back Have you heard about it? Have you heard the tales of when they didn't go yeah, exactly. so Exactly. The tales <laughs> of the past from your parents and that's what you want. Something that can actually make a change, not just have three years to muff around. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Up here. Um, well, I'm 19 and I'm from Western Sydney and I love the idea of, let's say, a Parramatta beach with the eastern suburbs being underwater. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, but um, more seriously, we are a nation which largely habitats in hot coastal cities, and the fact that we have one of the highest per capita carbon emissions seems kind of incongruous with the situation that we're in. Yeah, great. Good comments. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Hey, I'm Declan. Um, I don't really know much about politics or anything. Like, I'm kind of new to it, so... But you're here tonight. That's yeah. great. How come you came along tonight? Um, well, my grandparents recommended great. it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Intergenerational politics. That's great. But you're glad you came, right? Yeah. 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 yeah um, I don't have any major concerns, but... I mean, really, it would be, like, environment and stuff. Because that's really what I hear about through social media and stuff. That's what I really know about. So, yeah. That's great. Well, thanks, Declan. That really sums it up. That's great. <laughs> Let's get the panel just closing thoughts. We'll start with Frank and move down the panel. And what did you think of all the young people? That reflected that really, what you thought? Yeah, incredibly interesting. Um, and, yeah, obviously, environmental issues and climate change are, are really important. I mean, I, I think of this election, I think, as our, our first post-GFC election, you might think, what a bizarre idea, we've had three, as we have, but I I think the consequences of the GFC are now catching up with us. We've seen 
you know, during the last 20 years now. Iron ore prices, for instance, high, low, and they're, yeah, they're high again, but we know where they're going to go next. And our parties, of course, are treating this kind of bonanza as if it's going to go on forever. But what we actually know is that we are in a global environment where growth is low, or lower than it, it you know, really needs to be for, for, for full employment, for buoyant demand, all, all those kinds of things. And I think that is going to be the, the, criti- the centre point, if you like, of government for the next probably 10 years. Who knows? Yeah. Right, thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Um, I think there's a mood there for change, for sure. Um, but also have to be careful with that because people don't want too much change. That's, that's the point. Yeah, about the environment, yes. Um, the economy to a certain extent. Um, I think one of the big things all to emerge from this election will be the role of different stakeholders and how the elections run. We haven't really seen it yet, but when you hear numbers like um, GetUp having $12.5 million to do advertising and targeted messaging and campaign, it makes you start to think that we're heading to an arms race in politics in Australia, which is really unhealthy on democracy and the perceptions of democracy. So I think... One of the good conversations we'll need to have after the election is definitely the role of those different stakeholder groups um, and what influence they're having on our politicians, be they red, blue or green. I think all of you mentioned environmental politics, which I think is really interesting because it's not something that is usually come up when we do our our analysis. And I think it's probably... illustrative of a change or a generational change that I think will become probably a lot more important in the next election. We see this a little bit like with the labor trying to target more, as we would say earlier, but I think it's probably the next few elections will become a bit even more uh, a generational divide, I think. Thank you. I, I was really fascinated to hear those contributions from first voters, particularly the one over here which mentioned... Um, uh, housing affordability also with the, you know, the smashed avo comment um, because obviously Labor's trying to talk to that constituency in respect of you know, making curbs on negative gearing to try and you know, bring down house prices without admitting they're trying to bring down house prices because that's politically toxic. <laughs> um, but economics played a factor in a number of the comments. True, with, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. But the, the housing uh, question is a really interesting one because that is an, you know, it's one of those really powerful intergenerational questions that I've picked up from talking to young people a number of times, that, that idea, and it's a, it's a really strong, simmering resentment, the idea that uh, you know, your parents have a house, some of them have two houses or a beach house as well or whatever, but we can't, we can't even imagine getting one, let alone you know, have, sort of be on the cusp of doing so. So I think it's a really uh, sort of potent political mood out there in... in um, Across, uh, which is very generational, and I'll be interested to see how that plays out. And I think the the behaviour of the parties, at least on one side, shows that there's a fairly strong recognition of that. No, well, thank you, thank you, panel. What a great start to the election series. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you. And I think it shows. And I think it shows. I can proudly say, while I'm a proud Canberran, I am actually not part of the ANU. So I can say quite independently that the (laughs) ANU academics are doing a great job, really are, and leading these debates. And I think as locals or people who are passing through Canberra and coming along to these debates and discussions, they're going to be a really rich 
centre of commentary and discussion for people going through this campaign. So hopefully week after week we'll see these crowds build. I predict they'll be in the corridors by the end. (laughs) (laughs) So please tell your friends, share it on social media. We're back after the long weekend, so back here on the 30th of April looking at Australian domestic policy. There'll be two more. The final one is going to be at the National Press Club. That's going to be a a great one, looking at uh, the first 100 days of a new government, what that would entail. So thank you so much. Fascinating to hear your comments. And one of the great things is you can have your say by being part of it. When you register, you can put your questions in. You can have questions from the floor. So you can determine how this conversation goes. So thank you very much. And please thank uh, Katrine Beauregard, Mark Kenny, Andrew Hughes and Frank Bongiorno for their great contributions. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.